All right, friends, we're in the midweeks, and we're in Kings, and I need to confess something. We're coming to that section of Kings where I have never really been able to figure out which king is where doing what. It seems like such a, like a dozen kings in a blender who seem to all have the same sounding name. It's pretty crazy. So if I end up being confused here, um, just so you know, I've always been like that. But I've been rereading this quite a bit to try to uh, sort things out. So what we are here is we're in chapter 13, and we are in Israel. We're in the dynasty of Jehu, and he's got four kids. Uh, I think it's Jehoiahaz, um, uh, Joash, and Jeroboam, and then is it Zechariah is number four. And then after that, there's a series of like um, assassinations and there's no dynasties after that. And then the kingdom, the Northern kingdom goes into exile. And so where Jehu was like a high point in that he was like the instrument of God to destroy the house of Ahab. Um, but he, his lineage is not super faithful and they're all described as, um, sinning. The summary of their life is not they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but they didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so God is faithful to this like promise of a short dynasty. And then there's just all kinds of mayhem and then the complete destruction of the kingdom. And intermixed with that, we have one of the longest reigns in the history of Jerusalem, in of Judah in Jerusalem with, uh, I believe it's Azariah, who also is called Uzziah. And so there's the mix here. But in this chapter, we're going to see the final acts of Elisha, the prophet Elisha. And so that's kind of cool. This, these heroes, Elijah and Elisha, who have been the prophets and the center points of this book, we're going to have one more story of Elisha doing something and then one more story of him doing something even after his death. But let's go. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. So this is the southern kingdom. Uh, Jehoiahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. So we're focusing, the narrative is focusing on the northern kingdom with Jehoahaz, and he's got a medium-sized reign of 17 years. And then here comes the narrative summary of his reign. Verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, uh, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. Okay, so if you remember, as, as I remember, going all the way back to 1 Kings at the end of Solomon's time, when Jeroboam was appointed, he sinned in that he made these like idols. I think he made calves. And he wanted to set up an alternate worship center so that people wouldn't go down to Jerusalem and their hearts turned back to um, the Davidic king who was reigning there. And so there is a bit of a difference from Ahaz's rule. Ahaz was like a worshiper of Baal, remember? But Jehu has wiped out the temple of Baal. And so their sin, Jeroboam's sin here, sorry, Jehoahaz's sin here is not the same as Ahaz or Ahab, excuse me, but it is the same as that original false king, Jeroboam, with the idolatry. Verse 3, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, the king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. So here's another summary phrase. The consequent of, of the idolatry is that they regularly lose in military battle to Syria. 
in two uh, kings. So Hazael is given also a bit of a dynasty. His son reigns in his place and has also um, some victories against Israel. Then Jehoiahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, and he, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria opposed them. So here we have a moment. It's a summary. We don't actually go into the story, but we have a summary that he actually did seek the Lord. And uh, God had mercy on it. And it's not like he's rewarded for his faith here so much as he's rewarded for his humility. Plus, um, the Lord is just sad for the northern kingdom that they deserve such oppression so he sends them some relief so verse 5 and this is in parentheses in the bible therefore the lord gave israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the syrians and the people of israel lived in their homes as formerly nevertheless they did not depart from the sins of the house of jeroboam which he made israel to sin but walked in them and the asherah altar remained in samaria so this whole section here sounds a lot like Judges, where Judges had this cycle of like being rescued, but then returning to their idolatry. And this is sounds like that. And if it's on intentional that it's meant to sound like Judges, what we're hearing here is like a degradation or a devolving of, of the time where the kingship is now just becoming more and more like the pre-kingship time with the Judges. And there is a remnant of Baal worship. I think Asherah would often accompany Baal worship. And so Baal's temple was destroyed, but the Asherah was still left there. So a little bit more detail in the kind of idolatry that was happening there. Verse 7. For there was not left to Jehoahaz um, an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. So he just beaten the, the powder out of them and their army is just so small which again is another sign of the the decline of the northern kingdom it can't even sustain an army anymore now the rest of the acts of jehoahaz and all that he did and his might are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of israel so jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in samaria and joash his son reigned in his place now this is very unhelpful that uh, jehoahaz son is named Jehoash, which was the main focal point king in the last chapter who was ruling in Jerusalem. And so this is just one of these uh, accidents of history, they call it. But it, it's, it does make reading this story a little bit more complicated to have two people named the same first name. Um, all right. Verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, the king of Judah... Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign in Israel, um, over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. Now, this is interesting because both of these guys even have like two variants of their names, Joash and Jehoash. And so they're both called that in different ways at different times within the book. So again, also confusing, but here we have these two kings with the same names, one ruling in the northern kingdom and one ruling in the southern kingdom. Verse 11, he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers and Jeroboam sat on the throne and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now this is a very strange to me little moment in the king's narrative because we have the summary of Joash's reign here. But then when we go look 
in the next section at the life of Elisha, Joash is still alive. So we have this interesting time break where you have this succession of kings from Jehu to Jehoahaz to Jehoash. And Jehoash dies and we're named, we have Jeroboam named as his successor. But now we're going to stop and kind of go back in time as the narrative refocuses on Elisha as the main character and not on the kings of uh, the northern kingdom. And so this can throw you off a little bit because it's not a total sequence of time here. We're going to travel back in time in verse 14 when we pick up with Elisha. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash the king of Israel went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Okay, so we've gone back in time to when Joash is still alive. And he is now seeing that with Elisha dying, we're not told a lot about Elisha's interactions with these kings, pretty much nothing. But when he's dying, um, Joash believes that he's kind of losing his last resort for the defense of his country so oh man we've got no chariots we've got no horsemen and and you're dying so we're in real trouble verse 15 then elisha said to him take a bow and arrows and so he took a bow and arrows and then he said to the king of israel draw the bow and he drew it and elisha set, laid his hand on the king's hand and he said open the window eastward and he opened it then elisha said shoot and he shot and he said the lord's arrow for victory and the arrow for the victory over syria for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you've made an end of them. And then he said, take the arrows. And he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck the ground three times. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck him down. Story struck down Syria until you'd made an end of it. But now you will strike them only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Okay, so here's this last scene. And this is interesting because the story really slows down. You're not getting... You know, 17 years summarized in a paragraph, you have this incident of the king going to Elisha. And Elisha makes him act out this prophetic picture of taking his bow, which is a weapon of war, firing it to the east, which as I, yeah, firing it to the east, I don't know if that matters. Um, it might be like the direction the Syrians are coming, or it might just be the direction of the sunrise, or it might be nothing. But he does this symbolic act, and then he's told to strike the ground with it. And for some reason, he only does it a couple times. And this really displeases God and the prophet. And in one sense, it's almost like, is this fair <laughs> that he wasn't kind of told the rules? But I think the other side of it is that if he was really a man of faith when he was told to strike the ground with them he would have really been going for it thinking that this is doing something and so it how i read this is joash's unbelief um catches up with him with the with him only doing a little bit of what he's been told to do and so the man of god is sad because he actually wants israel to be able to fight off these guys do you remember when elisha was appointing hazael he was he actually wept because of the damage hazael was going to do in israel and so he's not pro syria he's pro israel but israel keeps responding with um, a lack of faith or a lack of complete faith and so god in his mercy is going to grant some military victory but not tons 
And I guess we can all learn, like, if you're living with a prophet, it's good to bring your best faith and maybe clarify what the prophet wants from you. Not in unbelief, but in belief. Okay, so Elisha dies. This is verse 20, second half of the verse. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as the man was being buried, behold, the marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown onto the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So very interestingly, remember Elijah and Elisha both have these like raising from the dead stories where they would lay themselves out on these boys. Now, God, probably to fulfill that number of the double miracles, um, works one more miracle on behalf of Elisha, even after he's died. Um there's this scene these guys are coming they're having a funeral they see marauders they get scared they're gonna quickly do this funeral they just chuck the guy uh into a grave and boom and then suddenly resurrection power comes to him and he's brought back from the dead and i don't know if this is just a cool story i don't know if god wanted to sort of show that um, elijah went to heaven and didn't taste death and elisha wasn't a worse prophet because he did taste death and wanted to honor him as a life-giving miracle person even in death uh, obviously there's some kind of you know uh, foreshadowing of christ here where even in death jesus brings life and god is such a life-giving god that even when his prophet is dead god can still use him to bring life even through his death um so I, probably that's a big part of it. And God's just wanting to keep using his Old Testament to point to his son. Hey, my son's the prophet that even when he dies, if you touch him by faith, so to speak, um, you can come back from the dead. But that's the last we hear of Elisha. He's passed away. And even in his death, he works a miracle. After his death, he works a miracle. But that's the last we're going to hear of him. Verse 22, and we'll finish off this chapter. Now, Hazael, the king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. Okay, so we're now transitioning from the focus being on Elisha back to Hazael and even back to Hazael pre-Joash. But the Lord was gracious to them and compassion on them, and he turned towards them because of the covenant, his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz's father in war. Three times Jehoash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Okay, so this little vignette here that goes through Hazael and his son Ben-Hadad fulfills the word of Elisha by recounting what was done with these three military victories. Joash used them to regain some cities that Hazael had taken from Israel. So it's not a complete wiping out of Syria, but it is a, a successful campaign. Um, but we also have two little things of note. Number one, again, we see that this uh, success or this like ability to have offer up some resistance to Syria isn't because God is overwhelmingly pleased with these kings, but is because he's remembering his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's just acting in mercy here. And it's interesting because it's not 
because of the promise to David. Remember, usually in the southern kingdom, where it talks about God being merciful to kings who didn't deserve it, it's because he remembers his promise to David. But here, he's not remembering his promise to David, but he is remembering his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's dealing with the northern kingdom very patiently and offering them um, rescuers for the sake of what he promised the patriarchs. But there's also this interesting little line where it says, nor has he cast them out from his presence until now. And this is a, an interesting little take. Like people argue about, does that mean that this, this passage was written before the Northern Kingdom fell? Because as we're going to find out in the next few chapters, the Northern Kingdom is going to fall and they will be cast out. But um, so it is a little sign, like a reminder that the prophets who wrote this entire book are using uh, words that historians or probably historian prophets were writing before then. And so this little line would remind you there was a time when God bore with them up till now, which is not now today, of course, but now back then. But it's, uh, but it's also just this good reminder that like whenever you see the until now, these things are kind of preserve, preserving the tradition of coming back to the text or I don't even want to use the word tradition but the the prophets have not erased the evidence of previous prophets writing in this book maybe that's all I'll say there was a final prophet who worked this whole story together after the exile of the southern kingdom had happened but he used material that previous prophets had written and a previous prophet had said until now in the book and so he kept it there as just as like a sign of how he was working his inspired text and I'm not saying that anything is less inspired because of this as I understand it you just have generations of prophets reworking material that previous prophets had written and they aren't shy or embarrassed to have the writings of previous prophets preserved in their final work that's how I understand what's going on here all right, we're done this chapter. It's a bit of a longer one. Thanks for bearing with me. Next time, we're going to be in chapter 14, and we are going to uh, keep going on with this like hurly-burly back and forth with these kings. Be blessed, Church of God.